reading from Jonah 3.10 to 4.11. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, it is not this what I said when I was yet in my country. That is why I made haste to flee to Teresh, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and set to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so, that, so he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, Is it better for me to die than to live? But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Jackie. Jackie loves it when I give her really long passages to read. We kind of have a running joke that I always give her the choice passages to read. None of those one or two verses kind of things. Uh, it, let me welcome you once again. If, you, uh, if we have not had the chance to meet, my name's Ben. I'm the assistant pastor here. Um, and it is my privilege to take a look at this passage together with you. Now, um, if you've not been around Redeemer the last couple weeks, uh, it is always challenging. We're at the end of this like little mini-series and... We're reading a passage that's at the very end of a book of the Bible, and so there's always a little, a little catch-up to do. But if you've been around Redeemer um, in the last few months, you know that we have taken this as a season to go back and say, who are we? Or, or maybe more accurately, who is it that we want to be? Who is it that we feel like God has called us to be as a group of people? And over the last two Sundays, uh, Matt has uh, try to articulate a little bit more precisely of what do we mean when we say, hey, we're a midtown church. We're, we're a church that wants to live and occupy and be in the middle of the city here that we find ourselves. And so he's introduced a couple of concepts here. One, that we want to be in the city, that we want to live proximate to and, and with and around our neighbors, that we want to have enough of a relationship with them to, to weep with them in their sorrows and to rejoice over their wins. Um, then last week he talked about uh, that we're in Midtown, but we're not of it. We're not of the, the same fiber and, and the same value systems, right? That we come to Midtown as people who are fundamentally 
shaped by the words of God and, and who he has made us to be as people. So while we live here and we uh, love it here and we rejoice to participate in it, um, it's not us, right? That's not all that there is to our story, that we are distinct from these people. And yet, that doesn't quite tell the whole story. To say that we are in but not of our city tells, tells much of what we want to be, but it is still entirely possible to live in a city and to be not of a city and still not have God's heart for the city, to not be for the city. And so that's what we want to look at today is we want to say that we want to be people who are for our city, and we're going to do that primarily by looking at our friend Jonah here, uh, who is definitely not for the city that he finds himself in. You heard it right there from the, the, the get-go, that there is this prophet, this man who, uh, if, if, if uh, you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, that God has said, hey, look, Jonah, there's this great, big, scary city called Nineveh. You've probably heard of it because in the ancient world, it was uh, really, in many ways, the, the biggest show uh, in the world. It was the capital of the largest empire at the time, the Assyrian Empire, that controlled one of the, the largest uh, plots of land that, that the world had known to that part. It was one of the most successful empires of the ancient world, and Nineveh was its heartbeat. It was a place, it was the center of, of commerce and the economy. It was the, the center of culture and, and development. It was the center of, of power. But if we listen to, to the Old Testament, it was also the center for a lot of other, a little less savory things. It was the center of bloodshed and violence in the ancient world. That it was the center of, of people who, who spoke untruths to one another, who took advantage of one another. Nahum tells us that it was the center of, of people who were hoarding their wealth and depriving it from those around. And so God did what God always seems to do, and there's a dark corner in his world as he sends his people right into the thick of it. He sends his people to proclaim his goodness. And so that's much of what was, has transpired in Jonah, is that God calls Jonah, he says, go to Nineveh and and, uh, and, well, Jonah didn't exactly want to do that. Jonah, in fact, in the beginning of the book, he, he packs up his bags and he hikes the other way. He buys a, a one-way boat ticket to, uh, to Tarshish to avoid going to this place. God had to, you've probably heard an allusion to this, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, that that the, the story that's written in Jonah is that this, his ship is assailed by a storm and, and Jonah gets thrown overboard and a fish actually has to pull him against his will back to this city of Nineveh. And so here we have someone who is in the city that God has called him to be. He is physically there when we open our passage against his will, granted, but he is he's there. He is in the city. We also find that he is not of this city, right? That he is cut from a different cloth from the people around him. And you can hear when he goes around and he, he comes to bring a message. Uh, he's not trying to win friends here. Listen to what he has to say. His, his sermon was pretty short. 
He said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Ninevites, you have uh, so blasphemed the name of God. You have so brought so much harm and, and evil upon the people that God has created in this earth that destruction is about to come upon you. And so we have a prophet who's in the city. We have a prophet who is not of the city. The question is, what is he for? Whose advantage is Jonah trying to live his life for? What good is Jonah trying to bring in the world? What is it that makes Jonah get up out of bed in the morning? And what does he go to bed thinking about at night? How is it that Jonah understands who he is? And how does he make sense of this life in Nineveh that he has been given? And this is a question that's essential for us in this sermon series when we say, who do we want to be? Because while you are here, right, so you're in Midtown, you're in Memphis, a lot of us have very strained relationships with the place that we live, maybe not so different from Jonah, right? Some of you are, are here in Memphis, but you're here just for a little bit, right? You didn't choose this place, the residency placement process, uh, you drew the Memphis uh, the Memphis straw out of the hatch, right? Some of you were imported here, uh, perhaps slightly against your will, because you uh, married a Midtowner, I mean, a, a Memphian, and they, uh, they suckered you into this place, right? If we narrowed our focus down to Midtown, uh, it, outside of the city of Memphis, we could probably include a few more of us. Right, folks who, who love Memphis, who grew up here, this is the place, these are our people, this is our culture, and yet Midtown doesn't quite fit in your realm and your understanding of what Memphis is. In fact, Midtown is, it's kind of like a bad relationship with your in-laws, right? You, you love this church, you, you want to be a part of this church, you want to be a part of this group of people, but Midtown is just kind of like those people that come along with the, the church that you want to love. It's like this... Uh, weird truce that you have made with this place. Because we keep talking about Midtown, 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 and you're like, mm, I, I'll come on Sundays, but that's not really what I want to be about. So you're in Memphis, perhaps against your better judgment or against your will, but you're also not of Midtown Memphis. And to prove that to you, I'll just point out that you are sitting in a church on a Sunday morning um, in Midtown, which is a very un-Midtownish sort of thing to do. If you do happen to live here, you've probably noticed that there's not many folks leaving their home on Sunday morning along with you. So you're in Midtown. You're not of Midtown. There's something that is distinguishing you from the, the culture and the place here. The question is, is what are we for? What is it that animates our lives? What is it that, that draws us to the work that we do every day? What is it that draws us into relationships? What is it that excites our emotions? When we hear the story of Jonah, there's a lot of emotions going around. But there's also two very distinct plans, two very distinct characters who have or are animated by two very different causes, who have organized their lives for the good of, of two very different groups of people. 
And so this morning, I want to take a chance, and we want to look, what is it that Jonah is for? Or who is it that Jonah is for? What is it that, that organizes? What good is Jonah trying to see in the world? And the second is to ask the question of what is it that God, right, the other character in this chapter, what is it that God is for? Who is it that God is for? What is it that he is trying to work into the world? So first, let's take uh, the, the first question. Who is Jonah for? Whose good is Jonah after? Well, in this passage, um, I think we can see it by looking not, maybe not so positively, like what is he doing for somebody, but what is he most decidedly against, right? You, you heard it as we uh, heard the passage that Jonah is not doing so well. The, 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 the things that he's against are happening in his world. Listen in verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, right? And if that's not enough, listen to verse 3. Jonah talking uh, to God, Please, Lord, take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's not doing so well, right? Things have not gone Jonah's way. This is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day for Jonah. Why? What is it that Jonah is against? What is it that Jonah does not want to happen? Well, the people of Nineveh repented. The people of Nineveh uh, are not being destroyed as Jonah thought they would. And now, lest you think that Jonah is, is purely evil, I will say he's a little evil here, right? But it's not just a, a, a desire for violence that Jonah wants. It's not just... Uh, a, destruct, uh, a desire for death that Jonah wants. Jonah has a complicated relationship with the Ninevites. You see, when Jonah looks at the Ninevites, when he looks at the, the king of Assyria, what he sees is his oppressor. What he sees is the very people who are trying to steal his country from him, trying to steal his homeland from him who want to take his, his faith and his religion and, and squash it under a bug. What he sees is people who, who want to take his sisters and brothers as slaves. He, he sees is people who are trying to wipe his, his, his entire existence off the face of the planet. And so if we asked Jonah, if we said, Jonah, whoa, Okay, you sound a little heavy-handed there. What is it that you want? Why are you, why are you the way that you are, Jonah? Uh, he would likely tell us a story that, 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 that sounds a little more reasonable, right? He would say, no, I am living my life for the protection of my people. I am for the, the, the good of God's people, that God's name would be known. I am for the cause of freedom in the world and against this, this evil tyrant who is, who is imposing his bloodshed and his greed on the world. Jonah would say, I'm, I'm, for, uh, I'm for seeing the, the power structures and the, 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 the violence structures. I'm for those things coming to an end if God would just wipe this city off the face of the earth. But God says, are you sure that's what you're for? Are you sure that's what you want? Or is there something else going on here? Something else going on inside your heart? And so God introduces Jonah to, uh, I'm going to call it a diagnostic. 
a little test, right? He says, what is it that you are for, Jonah? Well, let's try this. And so in verse 6, he, Jonah is, has gone on a little, uh, we'll, we'll call it a camping trip, right? He has left the city. He's gone outside. He's made himself a little shelter, and it is a very unpleasant place to be sitting. And so God raises up a, a vine, the text tells us, to, to uh, save him from his discomfort, and Jonah was thrilled. This made Jonah's day. This, this vindicated Jonah's experience to have just this little, we'll say, three feet of shade that he could be a part of, just a little reprieve from the beating of the sun. He was thrilled. But then God took it away. He says he appointed a worm to come eat the plant, and he, and he appointed a, a, this east wind, and he appointed a scorching sun, and Jonah finds himself by verse 8 right back where he started. It is better for me to die than to live. And if something is better, if, if, if what happens, it is better for you to die than to live, then that's probably the thing that you're living for. All right, if losing three feet of shade, if, if, if losing that little bit of comfort brings you to a place where your life is no longer worth living, then that's probably what you were living for. Jonah was living for three feet of shade. Jonah was living for a little taste of comfort. Jonah was living for himself. Whether it was when he... Uh, was distraught over the vine, or whether it was when he, quote-unquote, was for his own people, when he was uh, angry at the Ninevites, in both expressions, Jonah's heart, Jonah's animating feature is that he is for his own good, for his own comfort, for his own peace. So if we're talking about a sermon about what are we want to be as a church, what do we want to be for it? the story of Jonah leaves us in a pretty uncomfortable place. Because it doesn't take a great deal of imagination to invent some diagnostic tools for ourselves, right? Maybe you are like Jonah and you have experienced a hardship of, of some manner or, or fixture, right? Because something has occurred in your world and it has turned you upside down. It has kept you up at night and it has afflicted you. If you're human, this has happened dozens of times in your life at the very least. But the diagnostic question is, is, what is the source of your angst? Has it ever in your life been that you are, have angst because of the good of other people? Or do you merely always consistently feel angst because your own comfort is being threatened, because your, uh, your rightness in the world is being threatened, because your comfort is being threatened. We could flip the diagnostic around, right? Instead of saying, what brings you angst? We could say, what brings you joy in the world, right? We live in a time of unpro uh, unprecedented mobility, right? Economic mobility, social mobility, you know, just that so you can get in one of these cars and go wherever it is that you want to go. And so you have constructed your life, as have I, around something, some vision for, for your life, right? Where do you live? You've made choices about where you live. You've made choices about um, what kind of career path you want to follow. You've made choices, if you have kids, about what kind of school environment would be best for them to grow in. 
hundreds of different ways that you uh, could conceive of the world. But the diagnostic question is, did you make any of those choices? Was there, was there a factor in any of those choices that was saying, hey, if I buy this house, if I live in this area that brings me close enough to people that I can love them well, that I can weep with them in their sorrow and rejoice with them in their gladness? Have you chose your, your career path because you think that it will be able to, to bring good into the world and, and, and bring jobs or bring uh, beauty or bring fill-in-the-blank? Have you chosen your child's school because you think it will make them rich or, 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 or well-positioned or bring them into the quote-unquote right friend group without any desire for them to learn to love the people that are there? Do I? Do I, as, as a, a uh, minister, right, who has, has moved my family around the country, have I made my choices for good of other people, or have I made them for the good of myself? See, this is not a very fun diagnostic process, is it? Because the diagnostic inevitably leads us, while some of us want to puff out our chest a little bit, the diagnostic inevitably leads us to say that we are far more for ourselves, far more for organizing our world and our ambitions around our own comfort, around our own pleasure, than to care for those who we find around us. I don't say these diagnostics to beat you up. I say this to prove a point. And when the question comes to our church, what is your church for? What is it that you long to see in the world? Our fundamental starting place, the fundamental place that you personally in your life, I personally in my life, our life together as a church is going to say we are really for ourselves. The easiest thing to, for us to do as a, as a unified church body is to say uh, we want a, 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 a comfortable building to be in that we want to have comfortable programs that bring us with the kinds of people that we like hanging out with, that we want to build a, a structure that feeds us, that nourishes us, and that we can leave and go our way in peace, that we want the church to be for ourselves. Because we're a room full of Jonas. But yet we think that God has called us to something else. We believe that God has called us to be a church that is for Midtown Memphis. And that brings us to the other character in the story. Who is God for? What is it when we look at this story that we see God acting? What, whose interest do we see God acting in this story as he responds to Jonah? And we can just read verse 11. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Who is God for? Well, God's for the 120,000. He's for those people that live and occupy that place. He is for their good. He is for their prospering. He is for their peace. God is for this city that he has called Jonah to. And in the same way, we believe that God is for this little corner of our city that he has called us to be a part of. And indeed, he is for the whole city and he is for the whole world. 
right? But when we ask the question, who do we want to be as a church? We want to be a church that's for Midtown in the way that God is for Midtown. What is that? Uh, you know, that's a simple thing to say, and, and it's a simple principle. We can move on uh, from there. But let me just take a couple minutes here to unpack a little bit of what that might look like. There's a couple illusions that God uh, makes in this last verse that I want to unpack because I think it helps us to visualize what that might mean for us as a community. Uh, uh, there's, there's two primarily that I want us to spend time on. I want to see that in this section, God bases his argument for why Jonah should be for the people of Midtown on this idea that there is dignity, there is value, and there is worth in these people. He, he wants Jonah to affirm the dignity of the Ninevites, but also he wants him to confront the depravity, to confront that which is ugly, to confront that which is broken in Nineveh. So God wants them to affirm their dignity. You can see it based in his entire argument is based upon this theme. He says, Jonah, you're really concerned about this little plant that grew up in a day and gave you a little shade, but you don't care at all about these 120,000 people. Yes, Jonah, I know that those are people who do not like me. I know that those are people who have, have lived their lives for selfish ends and have reaped violence and disaster on my world. Yes, Jonah, I know that those are unsavory folks to love, but they are my creatures. I made them. I placed the, my image upon the lives of each one of those folks from the the peasant sitting on the street corner, to the king who, who rules for his own self-gratification in the palace, they bear my image. They share my dignity. And so what he wants uh, Jonah to recognize is that those 120,000 people, though they, be, though they be Jonah's enemy, they are God's image. They are God's creation they're people of immeasurable worth. And so if we are going to be a church that recognizes the dignity and the beauty of God's creation in Midtown Memphis, then we are going to be people who tirelessly seek out and find the good and the beautiful, the ways that the, the thumbprints of God that are all over the lives of our neighbors, even the ones who are most hostile, even the ones who would like us uh, gone from this neighborhood, even those for whom the world sees little value, that we're going to be the kind of people <clears throat> who search out, find a way to see God's imprint on their lives. This feels like a little bit of a lazy uh, illustration to me, right? But I, I think one of the most helpful pictures of this on a personal level Right, is if you, those of you who are familiar with Ted Lasso, the, the show, right? Um, and if, you, if you've not watched this TV show yet, I'm sorry, this isn't going to make a lot of sense to you. Because he as a character doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Because Ted Lasso goes around the world and, and he lives in this, this, this uh, city that was very strange and foreign to him. 
And every person he meets, whether the person is calling him an, an ugly derogatory name or whether they are supposed to be his coworker, right? Whether they are just the person who's sitting on the side of the road and he does, you watch him over and over and over again in relationships, he seeks out what is good and beautiful in that person's life. He seeks to find a way to encourage and, and celebrate that which is beautiful, their desire uh, their desire for community or, or, or their ability uh, to, to, you know, make a, a sandwich, right? Or, or, or the, the, the person who creates this pub where, where people from very different backgrounds can gather together and he celebrates their strengths. But also look at the way that this makes him deal with their weaknesses. Because he has seen the image of God importing my own view of Ted Lasso onto him, right? Because he's seen the image of God in these people, he deals with their weaknesses very differently. He's not quick to judge or to condemn. He's not quick to seek revenge when people try to harm him. He is slow, as, as Jonah says of God, he is slow to anger, and he is abounding in loving kindness. And if Ted Lasso born of the imagination of, of writers who I don't know whether they know or don't know Jesus at all, could conceive that such a person could exist, how much more should our neighbors be able to conceive of such an event? Because we have the reason to show that kind of kindness to people. We have the reason to show that kind of patience and love to our neighbors, and not just personally, but also corporately, also institutionally. There are people in Midtown doing extraordinary things, upending what we know of medicine and suffering, of, of, of introducing, um, introducing innovative and, and creative ways to, to reshape the landscape of education. We have people who have, who have created entire industries out of their creativity and out of their worth and have brought uh, employment and sustenance to any number of people. There are so many structures, people in our city who God, who, who, where the image of God is not just seen in them, but in their work. And so we as a church don't want to just be the neighbors that love on our uh, human relationships. We want to be neighbors who occupy and support and encourage the institutions and the culture and the structures that are forming our city more, to make our city look more like God's kingdom than it does today, whether they know it or not. So we as a church want to partner with the organizations who are doing the very best, and we want to work alongside, and we want to be their biggest cheerleaders and their biggest supporters, because there is dignity and there is worth in a city, even if not a single one of them knows the name of Jesus. But there's something else. There's something else about the Ninevites beyond their dignity that's in God's imagination. And we hear it alluded to here again in verse 11, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. There is, a, a, to use a good, like, Christian word that starts with a D, depravity, that there is brokenness, that there is something about these people that, ought, that should merit our, our concern, that should merit our love, that should merit our affection. And so God compares the Ninevites to 
frankly, a, a group of toddlers, right? If I took you and, and if we all went on a little field trip to the back hall to the toddler nursery, right, and, and one of us was, was leading the children in a fun-filled game of Simon Says or uh, uh, Hokey Pokey, right? Put your right hand in, put your right hand out, put your right hand in and shake it all about. What would the toddlers be doing with us? They'd be very enthusiastic. They would love this game. But would they be putting their right hand in? 50-50 shot, right? It's 50-50 shot. More than likely, they'd be putting their left hand in because they would see they'd be trying to mirror yours. Or maybe, just maybe, they'll get it right and they'll be putting their right hand in. But why are they doing it? Because they know which way is right and which way is left? It's because they look around at everyone around them and they compare their lives. They compare the purpose of their lives. They compare the manner by which they live their lives to everyone around them. And God looks at the Ninevites and what he sees is confused children who do not know that they were made in the image of a God, who do not know their heavenly father. And he says, Jonah, Jonah, you should want to confront that depravity because you should want better for them. And in the same way, I think he invites us to occupy this place as folks who are not of Midtown, as folks who are shaped by the story of a God who pursues and loves and forgives, that we are going to, to confront the, the, the depravity in our world. Now, for those of you who are sitting here this morning and you have a different faith structure than I do, who don't believe the same things I do, who don't believe in the same God, as I do, I can imagine comparing you to a toddler uh, feels a little bit offensive. Um, that's not usually a great way to win friends, is to tell them uh, that they're confused as a toddler. And maybe more of us feel a little defensive, right? Because some of the very best people, some of the most loving and kind people you know don't share our faith system. Some of the people who give of themselves regularly don't share uh, the, the, the commitments that I do to the story we tell here at the church. And at one level, I should say, that's not surprising at all. I just told you why. Because the image of God, his goodness has been imprinted on their life that no matter how hard they try, they cannot erase God's goodness. So it goes without saying that there are people who do not believe the way that we do, who live lives, moral lives that, that far exceed our own. What it's saying is, is that they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand what they're doing. They don't understand why what they're doing, and that ultimately leads to chaos and to confusion. Right? There are folks who have, have done great good in our city, right, with no conception to a God who loves them, but how much more, how much better would they be if they did? Right? How much less anxious? How much less uh, uh, depressed? How much less distressed? would they experience if they knew, if only they knew that they have a heavenly father who loves them. And it doesn't matter what their body shape looks like. It doesn't matter what their bank account reads. It doesn't matter uh, what their, uh, what, uh, who, who is their friend list, right? Or who's on their speed dial, that there is a God who loves them. How much more if they were confronted with the story of God with the, confronted with, with the one who made our right hands and who made our left hands, how much more 
beauty would we see? In a world that tells us that you're free to do as much as you, as, you know, do whatever you want as long as you don't, you know, inflict that upon other people or, or damage other people as you do so. And that's a system that works for a little while, but ultimately it leads to, camp, to, it leads to, to irreconcilable uh, conflicts, right? What if the, the, the person with whom I think I can fulfill my sexual fantasies with is not my wife? Well, if I pursue what I think is good, then I can do nothing but bring destruction upon my wife and upon my family, right? If what I think is good is for me to make as much money as I possibly can, I cannot help but bring conflict and discord and to take advantage of my customers, of my employees, of my competitors, right? We can't live life all going for what we think is good. We cannot say that that is ultimately what brings flourishing. But if, what if into a world that has uh, declined the option of God, who has, who has uh, written off the image of God as a possibility, what if they were confronted with the fact that there is a Father who created this universe, that we are not left to ourselves to figure out what is good, what is right? What if they knew that there was a God who has designed this world and he has given us his wisdom on how to live in it? How much more, how much more beautiful, how much more moral, how much more peace there could be in our world if God was transforming their hearts and their minds? And so we as a church want to live in this space, not just where we love on and, and are friends with, deeply close friends with people, that, but that we're, we're, we're such good friends with people who don't think like us that they know that that God has transformed our sense of identity? What if we're so changed that, that to know us is to, to begin to experience a different pattern of life, a different level of, of uh, confidence and certainty in the world? What if we were willing to be honest about what it is that really brings us peace and sleep at night? What if we were honest enough to say, I believe in God? And I believe in Jesus who has made the world. Well, at this point, you're either really annoyed with me, right? Or if you feel, you feel about this big. You feel about this big because you realize that your life is lived primarily for yourself. And even as I talk about what God's desire for us to live for the world, and you go, that's... That's not possible. That's hypocritical. There's no possible way that we can go there. There's one last thing that God is for in this passage that we cannot close. Even if I've gone long-winded, I cannot close the sermon until we talk about it. Because God is for the dignity of the Ninevites, and he is for confronting the depravity of the Ninevites, but he is also for something else in this passage. He is for Jonah. That he, throughout this whole passage, is seeking after and chasing after this, this prophet, this person who he has sent into the world. 
This person whose every inclination is against what God's is, who's, who despite knowing better has chosen to run the opposite way, who has chosen time and time and time again to live purely for himself and purely for his own, for his own comfort, and God chases him down to confront him with this fact. In fact, in, in verse 6, when it says, um, that God came to save him from his discomfort. There's actually a play on words in the Hebrew where it, it could also be translated, he came to save Jonah from his own evil, right? He came to reverse the course of Jonah's life, to open up Jonah's imagination that his life could be good, not just for his own comfort, for, but for the world that God had created. God does not give up on Jonah, he chased down his ship. He brought him back on a fish. When Jonah's throwing a pity party, Jesus goes and he sits with him there because he knows what is good for Jonah is to be good, is to be for the city that he has called Jonah to. And he knows the same for us. If God would chase after and pursue and transform this one measly prophet. How much more will he do that for us? How much more will he do that as a church to transform us? You see, because the, the reality is, is that we cannot be for Midtown. We cannot be for anyone but ourselves if we are not transformed by the persistent, chasing love of God. We can be for Midtown only and only to the extent that we know that God is for us that what he is inviting us to is his very heart. What he's inviting us to is his very life. So who do we want to be as a church? We want to be a church that occupies and lives in Midtown. We want to be a church that has, uh, that in beats to a, walks to a different beat uh, than those who don't know Jesus. But we want to be a church that relentlessly is for the good of those around us, that is relentlessly for the coming of God's kingdom. Pray with me. Father, I pray that you would shape us, that you would form us, that you would animate our thoughts and our desires. God, that you would give us a vision for the world and a vision for redemption that is far bigger than anything we could ever come up with. Lord, we pray that you would not leave us as we are, but that you would transform us. Each man, woman, child, that you would transform us as your church family in this neighborhood to love it, to represent you, to invite our neighbors to a life of wholeness and peace in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.